0: The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts.
1: Welcome to City Road. I'm Dallas Rogers, and today we're talking to Professor Saskia Sassen, the Robert S. Lind Professor of Sociology at Columbia University. Saskia is, of course, most famous for the idea of the global city, but today we'll be talking to Saskia about the methodological ideas in three of her books. We'll start with the global city, then we'll move to territory, authority and rights, from medieval to global assemblages, and we'll finish up with her newest book, Expulsions. Saskia Sassen, welcome to the show.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I'd like to talk through three of your books today in a kind of intellectual history of some of your ideas. I'd like to start with perhaps your most famous book, probably one you're sick of talking about, The the Global City. But I wanted to talk about a key idea in that book, and that was the idea of intermediation. Could you tell me what that idea is and why it was important for that book?
0: Yeah, And, and to me it was a kind of also a discovery because I I could see that there was something that wasn't quite working when you use the traditional categories. So by intermediation, I meant to capture an emergent, complex, high-income, a lot of intelligence and knowledge sector That can provide the big corporations that want to go global with whatever needs they have in terms of accounting information, in terms of what uh, are the desirable modes of investment that a country might have, and and this variability that you have, you know, from Mongolia to Argentina to Paris, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it seemed to me that what marked the global era was not the large corporations that had long existed, that acted internationally, but not globally. You know, the global is different from the international. And so I then called that an intermediation function. And in my head, the image was as if a a ship, you know, a huge area just comes down and installs itself in these cities. There was something external about these you know they they were also they were coming from so many different countries. You had like seventy nationalities, you know, in in New York, for instance. so so it it worked as a different type of space. It marked itself as different from whatever had preceded.
1: Mm. and you were talking about the city as still being very important in the global, in the globalization literature. i I read it as a kind of pushing back to this idea that, globalization was going to, you know, be something bigger than the nation state or bigger than the city. And the the city was still very important in that.
0: Yes, exactly. So you had two things happening. Uh, And it was probably in, in, in New York, it was very visible, less visible in other countries, which had only one major city. But in New York, you could see, and in Chicago, you could see that the big corporations were leaving the city. New York was a mess. There was racism. There was violence. Uh, People were afraid. The middle classes tried to leave. If they could leave, they left. So it was a very degraded moment in American cities, but also, I would say, in other cities, not so much Europe. Europe is always a bit more more civilized, you know. But in, in Latin America, for instance, there was a desire to live in suburbs. They were clean. They were safe. Uh, You didn't have the poor hanging out there, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so the notion was among the experts in New York, for instance, which is where I was living, so I spent a lot of time with these people. The notion was that cities are no longer important for the major economic sectors uh, of our modern era. So the, the notion was, especially these big corporations, and it is and the big banks, you know, but very traditional forms, and indeed they were leaving these cities because New York was not a desirable place to be in, in a way. And so for me, the discovery was to understand that a whole new system was actually installing itself in these cities, and that was a global city function. That was the global city function in its narrowest definition. In other words, a very uh, mixed setting and very intermediated because they all needed each other. No single firm could deliver everything, unlike the big corporates, you know, which made a point of they delivered the final product, so to say. And so that is what began to struck me. And it struck me also that it sort of came from the outside. It was not endogenous, the big corporations were endogenous. They had been around, you know, for 150 years or 200 years. But this was something that literally came from the outside. It was like a novel format. And you had so many different nationalities involved in this, but everything very, very high-level intelligence. This was not uh, sort of pretending to know. This was the real knowledge ground. And that meant very specialized knowledge, and that meant that it, no firm could cover everything. So you had like a hundred firms, you know, and that is what sort of installs itself. in, And New York and London were particularly strong cases at that time. And Tokyo was also, but Tokyo was a bit different, was more traditional.
1: It's probably hard to get a neat case study of this process, but is there one place, time, sector, organization that really captures what you're talking That's about? That's a there? very
0: good question. I would say that... We actually generated a whole new literature because other people then also became part of this effort and And we called it the producer services. So this was different from other kinds of like cleaning services and all of that. This was about producing elements, both you know high level instruments, but also concrete issues yeah, that were ne- like a, a particular kind of good quality architectural firm building a complex setup where you needed say goldman sachs needed a vast open space where all these computers could they could just see whatever was happening around the world eh? so it was a very very broad range but at the center of it was knowledge about all the practices the law The preferences, practices, law, specialized services in accounting, in advising what's a desirable investment product in this country, in that country, and really covering increasingly the whole world. Mm. So I remember the moment when Mongolia enters the picture, you know, because people think of Mongolia as an empty land just with amazing horse riders. But Mongolia also became part of this system, of course, because of all the minerals. Right. And so there, you needed very specialized knowledge. Or China, you know, you needed. So you needed super experts, and and many to, to cover China. You needed a battalion of experts on different kinds of aspects, you know. So that is what led me to really say this is the global city. And let us remember, this is very important for me. Nobody ever says it. Most of a big city is not global, it's local. Mm. And so the globality needs to be captured, it needs to be detected, it needs to be named, it needs to be described. Mm. And that is what I did in the global city.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The next book that I wanted to talk about was Territory, Authority and Rights. My best book which i actually it's it's my favorite book too i really really like that book and there's and i know i've actually used quite a lot of the ideas in there particularly the ways that you think about constructing knowledge and use the, the methodological right. ideas right. Um, and I guess there's three that I wanted to talk through, capacities, organizing logics, and tipping points. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to deal with those independently or talk about them together, but maybe what is the methodology here and why is it important right. and how did you put it into play? Yeah. This is also a historical book, That's, yeah. I, I like the historical dimension yeah. to this book. Yeah.
0: So I, uh, I don't write as a historian, right? I write as a, I always like to say, I write as a digger. I want to go digging. I, I don't want the description. I want how it works, the works. You know, the, whatever the elements that are the active working elements in a particular period that are the dominant. When you begin to think about it that way, it actually simplifies the work of capturing a sort of filière, you know, a history that cuts across centuries and across different modes, that keeps. I mean, a lot of these older cities, they are still there, you know. A lot of what were the challenges, uh, economic, also also legal, etc. In a way, they have old histories very often. So, so for me, that was a way of leaving the surface and going sort of below ground to see what are the working elements that make it. Now, the second point was, a starting point for me, was the fact it took me a while to establish that and to accept that and to believe that, etc., that how do complex systems change? And they don't change by changing everything. They often change by shifting capabilities from time one to time two. And so the need to go digging, Rather than describing a visual order or a, or a known set of elements, you know, that mark a period, uh, the, the who were the political classes and all of that, I was more interested in understanding how do they survive across centuries? Because remember, if you were looking at cities and if you were looking also at certain trading modes and at certain, uh, the the making of powerful actors, I mean, they, they that stuff has existed for centuries and millennia so i was trying to sort some sort of pathway that that keeps uh, hanging in there and that keeps ensuring that we understand something about the cities that they have long had you know rather than the latest development the latest you know whatever and so Again, the forming question for me was how do complex systems change? And I wind up with an answer sort of midway in this project saying they do not change by changing everything. They often change by shifting existing capabilities from time one to time two. That allowed me two things. One was to to live with a very long history for a city or for a place. It wasn't only city. I was also looking at nation states, uh, So it allows me that and it allows me to understand what keeps surviving and how does it, it may change a bit and that might be enough for it to survive yet another epochal transformation. I was sort of really interested in the, in the system in play. Mm. Uh, Rather than the buildings and the, you know, it was like something about a system.
1: So the capacities, the organizing logics and the tipping points, they're ways of thinking about the system and how the system is manipulating itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely, exactly. And that is why I needed uh, to use use them a lot, not just for one instance. The whole point was that these were instruments that allowed me to navigate epochs without being burdened by all the details, by all the stuff that changed, by what died, by, you know, it's just sort of tracking how does this system stay alive. I mean, that is the amazing thing. When you think of far more formal systems of power, they're more or less the old ones are all gone.
1: Yeah. So in many ways, it's a way of actually... Focusing on in on specific parts of the system, so you can say there is a lot of noise in this history, and by looking at the capacities, the organizing logics, and the tipping points, I focus in on particular parts of this system which I think are important.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. You said it very well. Yeah, very well said, and and it it, it enables you. To cut across different histories, because remember that I covered a very long set of epochs, without losing the plot, Mm. because it's not your plot. Mm. It is what survives. And as it survives, what shapes does it take? Mm. You know, so that created a kind of a clarity of purpose that I always thought that others could use for other kinds of histories, you know like a Chinese student who wants to you know they, they could also use that what is it that has well if you look at the epochs you lose the connections far more easily you know mm. if you look at the epoch in this epoch when this city was alive and you know so I, I like this other mode that was sort of my my way of traveling through it all <laughs>
1: You're listening to 2 ser on 107.3 FM in Sydney, and we're talking about the methodological ideas that run through Saskia Sassen's work. And next up, we move to her book, Expulsions. So the next book I'd like to talk about is uh, (laughs) Expulsions. Uh And expulsion is a key idea in this book. So I will get you to talk about that. Another idea in there is the idea of systemic edges. And I wonder if the idea of systemic edges is kind of talking back to the idea of tipping points.
0: Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought about that. You're the first one that puts it that way. That's interesting. But uh, so the systemic edge... I'm trying to capture ruptures inside what we think of as an integral tissue, a nation state. That is one one language to use. And so the challenge then is, okay, it may look it's one, and somewhere at the top, the laws, etc., Generate, you know, some kind of apparatus that includes all of these different elements, you know, either in a critical way or in a in a supportive way, whatever. But they're all included, and so really, I, I was after ruptures, and looking after ruptures also meant looking what survives across different epochs. You know, this has long been an issue for me. <laughs>
1: And, um, the timeline of this book isn't as long, though. This isn't really a historical. No, book. this is it's, about today. Yeah,
0: I really, I, I uh, somewhere in the book I say that the 1980s marks a very significant rupture, and the installation of a whole set of new logics, and that that it has not really been seen clearly. We tend to think that the rupture was World War Two in the West and that after that you really do have a very significant transformation and that that still lives with us. I see the 1980s, which is when we sort of go global, when we deregulate, when we You know, there's a a combination of elements that really go wild in many places, in many countries. It also is happening in Argentina, in Brazil. It's happening in certain parts of Asia. It is a transformative moment. It doesn't change everything, but it changes a lot of the foundational sort of economics of these systems and the relationship between the state and, and the economic. And then in there, for me, also critical actor: the rise of high finance because let's remember that till till the mid 1970s something like the derivative was illegal <laughs> you know there was a while there was a while back a lot of the instruments that had been used like in in say in, in amsterdam you know in the 1600 were declared illegal because they were seen as as disruptive they were seen as uncontrollable and it meant that formal powers could not quite control it, and it was, of course, in the hand also of negotiators, and not necessarily
1: the princes and the queens. Huh? I think they turned out to be uncontrollable. And they
0: turned out <laughs> to be uncontrollable. That is correct too. So, um, so for me, that the question of ruptures, but also the question of how do complex systems change, and what can they actually absorb in terms of rupture. And still, you know, a filière emerges that can carry on across very, you know, significant periods uh, of time. And the, these two categories, the systemic edge huh, is is one of them. The systemic edge, I'm trying to locate that systemic edge inside a country. That is one of the contributions because everybody is, of course, at that moment talking about international, huh, the global era is, is is dominant, et cetera. And I wanted to. So basically,
1: re- when everybody's talking about nation states, you write a book about the global city, <laughs> and then when everybody's talking about the uh, the global, you to write a book about the nation state.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I a mean, bit. It was a, You know, I I wanted to recover, and also the notion that we have expulsions inside. Uh, whole societies rather than just something that happens you know the immigrants who come from another country either because they're victims of persecution or because they want a better life you know that, that sort of very dominant image that that we don't have strong borders etc so so for me the systemic edge is one of these concepts and it it captures something that if that systemic edge is crossed the character of membership, and of recognition that you are recognized as a member of a society uh breaks
1: can you give me an example of that
0: well i mean i have two examples that i like uh, to mention a lot and and one of them is the very long term unemployed i mean in some in some Ameri- in some uh, european countries they keep counting them you know even 20 years after they have not had a job not in a country like the united states not in countries like argentina and you know it, it, they stop counting them so at that point members of the society you know not foreigners members of the society become invisible to the eye of that particular law I don't, I'm not saying that that they lose their bodily you know no 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 but they become invisible to a whole variety of of legal instruments or instruments that make them present, that entitle them. That means that they carry this right with them, whatever the mix of rights it might be. So I wanted to give it a substantive meaning rather than just you're fired. <laughs> you know, some people thought that this was just about getting fired. No, it means that the law and other legal instrumentalities cease recognizing you. You do become invisible. Now, it's a very partial invisibility etc., etc. So that was one, one item. And, and the other item is this notion of dead land that I obsess about, that Europe does not have that problem very much, but I think Australia has it, and certainly the United States has it, and the Latin American countries have it, and many Asian countries have it. And this notion then engaging the notion of the sovereign and its authority... What does the sovereign actually govern when it comes to sovereign territory, when a significant part of that territory is being killed? By so you mean
1: like land that we've that's dead land because of extractive industries exactly. or mining or yeah. nuclear testing or something? Exactly
0: right, and and so in, and then inviting also this question of what does the sovereign actually govern. Uh, and there are, because we now know, now that the question of equality of women, uh, abuse of men, uh, by men of women, you know, the employees, or all that mm. kind of thing, uh, all of that has made v- visual, visible the fact that certain members of our society are not fully represented in many ways in the law. They have They lack protections that they should have, you know, so we're now building those protections. But for me, then, it also became a thing about Dead land, dead water bodies, and and by saying what does the sovereign actually govern when it governs, I can also embed in there a very severe critique. In in other words, also unsettling the power, the respect we owe, etc., to the sovereign. By sovereign, I don't mean a queen. Huh? I mean uh, clearly a. Whoever nation, is whatever the so
1: nation-state power or something? And, no,
0: I mean a government, a kind of government. Yep. Like, you know, in the in the, the UK, it's a bit different than in the US, etc., but you have a Western model. Mm. And, and in other parts of the world, they are, basically have that model, too, to a very large extent. That is what I mean. Mm.
1: Saskia Sassen, thanks for joining us today. <laughs> but before you go, I have this little quirk where, for a very long time, I've been getting people to sign their books with a little note to my daughter. Oh! To yeah. Your daughter yeah, delighted. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because when um when I was uh doing my PhD I used to travel around the world with her to go to conferences oh. and things. So from when she was very young I've been writing notes. She's now eighteen. <laughs> but could but could you sign my book with a little note Absolutely. to my daughter?
0: Absolutely, yes, yes.